These texts show to us God and his work to reveal the mysteries of his grace and his mercy to all people. We join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that as we listen to it more, we would have our faith encouraged and shaped and strengthened by the grace that you have freely given us in Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So in reading through all of these uh, scriptures, especially that text from Matthew, I am remembering back to my years in St. Louis. You see, there was a particular time where there was Magi Gate Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. You see, every year during Advent, the grounds crew would set up a beautifully detailed, ornate, nearly life-size nativity between the library and the chapel. And there was the baby Jesus in the manger, of course, and Mary and Joseph and shepherds with their sheep and some other animals in the stable as well. And then there were the three wise men bearing their gifts for the newborn king of gold and frankincense and myrrh. Until one cool morning during the winter quarter, when I arrived at campus on my way to the library, I noticed that the three magi were missing. Now news began to filter through the campus over the course of the day. This was before Twitter, so it took a little bit more time. And things began to come up. Well, did some neighborhood kids steal the magi? Were they broken by some wild animals that came through the campus or by the strong winds the night before? No, no, no. You see, sometimes pastors can find themselves quite clever and hilarious. Now, you wouldn't probably know this about this at St. John's because you've scooped up all the pastors who are naturally hilarious and actually clever. But you can imagine the kind of cleverness that some first-year seminarians might think of themselves along the route. You see, this was theological humor. We found that out as the president sent out a letter before the day was over, emailed to all of us who were students. And it said something to the effect of this. We thank you for bringing to our attention that according to your thorough reading of scripture and leading biblical scholarship, the Magi were not actually present with the shepherds and other stable guests who saw the Christ child on the night of his birth. Sorry if that bursts any bubbles. Thank you for making us aware that it may have been some time, maybe two years even later, when the visitors from the east arrived to greet the King of Kings. However, these statues were a precious gift from a friend of the seminary who loves supporting the raising up of pastors and is intended as uh, a reminder and encouragement as we prepare for Christmas of the importance and beauty of being called to proclaim the gospel story to the world. Return of the Magi carefully and promptly by the morning will result in full absolution, no questions asked. (laughs) The next day, they were there, back where they belong, at the foot of the manger, worshiping the newborn king. You see, for some, they didn't belong in the nativity scene. But you know, as we get a first glance at this text... The original readers of Matthew's Gospels would have said that they don't belong in the story at all. See, that they don't belong in the story of God's salvation. You see, for us, they fit. They fit because we've heard about them for for so long. We don't think anything of it to see those wise men 
with the baby Jesus. In fact, if they were removed, we would have something to say about that. See, we call them wise men and kings. But to first century Jews, they were pagan fools peddling their fake wisdom on the world. You see, they would recall the story of Daniel. And in that situation, in Daniel, there was a king who called wizards and magi and sorcerers to him in order to reveal and interpret the dreams that he was having. And of course, they were incapable and uncomprehending of those dreams. And it was only Daniel, granted wisdom by God, who was successful to the task. You see, these weren't actually kings. Often they were the servants of rulers, and often of rulers who opposed God's people and oppressed them. See, these magi were never really wise, at least not in the things of great significance. They were in the practice of supernatural things that opposed the one true God. But over the centuries, there have been those in the church who have helped to shape the narrative. So that these magi were a better fit to the story of God's salvation. You see, it isn't until around the 8th century that we begin to see mentioning of these magi as wise men or kings, and even more so really later on in the Enlightenment and the modern age, when suddenly these magi are described as, as, king, as kings, as wise men, as religious, as learned, truth-seekers, dedicated scholars, foreigners, yes, but in their own way, pious and godly. But they didn't belong, at least not in the ways the world might think. And so maybe the question is, who does belong? Who is it that should be included in God's story of salvation? Do you belong? Do I belong? How do we know? What's the criteria See, I can think back to a time in uh, my junior high days when going to a camp throughout the summer, of course, it would end in the evening with song and a message and prayer. And I remember on one particular night, after that evening's message, we were being led in prayer and saying the things that said, if you're not certain that you are saved, well, my thoughts began to wander. Quentin, you call yourself a Christian, but look at your life, your thoughts, your lack of trust. Look at the great things that other people are doing, and so suddenly it begins to pile on. How can we know for sure that we belong in the midst of God's story of salvation? So I think what we do is we do what the history of people have done with the Magi. We try to frame and shape the narrative in order to prove that we actually belong and fit. Because otherwise, we're left with a, a, the difficult thought and the tenuous uncertainty of that reality. And so we shape the narrative with our own rules and criteria and parameters and boundaries, all in order that we can create some form of, of confidence to say, hey, I belong. We belong in the midst of all of this. But I think if we were to honestly look at that, the interesting dynamic is that as we analyze our lists, our criteria, here's the interesting thing. I bet it's just enough for you to get in while still keeping plenty of others out. And if we're honest enough about ourselves, it's so that we can be honest so as to be kept humble, but at least, or at least seen not as being too arrogant 
but at the same time still being able to hold up our heads in pride and good standing with others. I wonder if we reflect a little more. Who is it do you think that we will see in heaven that we'll be surprised to see there? Because we do have in our thoughts, in our minds, those sorts of criterias of what ensures one to be in and to belong and what doesn't. Who's going to be there? Who's already in there now that in our minds shouldn't make the cut? In fact, I I bet there are people, unfortunately because of our judgmental sinfulness, there may be people we don't want to see in heaven that we don't think should be there, that we don't think fit the standards that we have set. But if we were to search the scriptures and the wisdom that is revealed there, what we see is that none of us belong according to any of those sorts of external criteria. The things that we say or do or think, the things that we listen to and respond to, none of those things. But that takes us back to Matthew's gospel. You see, as he tries to get his readers to see that God's way are different than the world's and are completely unexpected. You see, he constantly puts at odds normal expectations and the hidden realities that God is working And so in Matthew chapter 2, we see this consistently in the contrast of two kings. You have King Herod, who is what the world would expect for any king. He rose to power. He ruled with strength. He crushed the opposition. He was wealthy, politically gifted, and extremely clever in his ways. And then you have Jesus, a king born in weakness, as a child in need of protection and care, and born in lowly Bethlehem. And God reveals his saving ways in Jesus to unlikely recipients, these magi. See, and Matthew is consistently showing that that's how it is, is in this contrast between human ignorance and divine revelation. You see, it's how Joseph, who would have otherwise divorced his wife Mary, or his wife to be Mary, had God not sent an angel to say, no, this child that she is having is of a significance you do not understand. It's why we see that the Jerusalem's chief priests and scribes are completely unaware of this Messiah's birth and have to be made aware by these magi who have come to visit from the east. And the only conclusion that Matthew would have those readers make is not that these magi are wise men, whose learning leads them to Christ, but rather that they were ignorant people too, to whom God in his grace revealed the Christ. You see, their appearance in Jerusalem shows that they didn't exactly know where to go until the star reappeared. Their gifts showed that they didn't know what sort of king they would encounter in these gifts that you would bring to a child. And were it not for a dream warning them about Herod, they would have been a part duped into being a part of a plan to kill the Messiah they came to visit. But if we go on through Matthew, we see that it's during Jesus' ministry that he said in chapter 11, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and that you have revealed them to those who are children. 
And even as we get to the great testimony of Peter, that disciple, who said in Matthew chapter 16, in his great confession, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus said, you are blessed, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. You see, and that's how it is with each and every one of us. That God has revealed himself to us, despite ourselves, and anything that we could take claim of in all of this. Whether it was through the preaching of a pastor who, who proclaimed the gospel, or, or friends who, who shared or read scripture with you, or whether it was because of parents or grandparents or other family, friend, family members and loved ones who, who raised you daily in that faith. Christ has been revealed to you because of God and his work and his mercy. And it can be overwhelming to sit with that realization of the fullness of God's grace and our own lack of contribution to this new reality. It can lead us to wonder, well, why us then? Why us versus and not others? But you know, as I think about those magi, I don't think they spent much time wondering why it is that they were the ones who got to be uh, led by a star to visit the Savior. In fact, as we get, and not others included in that invitation, because when we read in Matthew chapter 2, verse 10, it says, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, that is an invitation for us as well. To rejoice. To rejoice in how it is that God has revealed Christ to you. To rejoice in how it is that he has shown you his mercy and his grace, his unending favor and kindness. Rejoice that he has shown you that your sinfulness and corruption, but also shown you and spoken to you God's forgiveness that cleanses and renews. Rejoice that he has revealed that the omnipotent God took on flesh and blood in order to give his life as a sacrifice for your salvation. Rejoice, because Christ has ensured that you do belong in the story of his salvation. Because he says to you today, I came for you, I died for you, you are God's child, you are forgiven, you are cleansed, you are a new creation. We rejoice exceedingly with great joy. And when it comes to others, it just might be that as he did with a star for those magi many years ago, that God might use us, our lives, our words, our actions, our presence, our kindness, to show others his gospel, to reveal the Christ, to show his grace and his mercy and his peace. Because those are the sorts of things that Jesus once said causes all of the angels in heaven to rejoice exceedingly with great joy. You know, around Christmas time, maybe you've heard it said, I know I've said, heard it said a number of times, the phrase is used, wise men still seek him. But a biblical scholar by the name of Mark Powell comments that maybe what we should be saying is, God revealed the truth about Christ to a bunch of pagan fools, while those who were wise enough to figure it out of themselves missed it, just like Jesus said. Yes, he did. Yes, he does. Yes, he will. 
Thanks be to God for all of our sake that he's revealed himself to us. In the name of Jesus, amen.